afternoon and welcome to today's class, which we are we going to be talking about Parshas Bullock, the Torah reading of Bullock. Just before we begin the Torah reading of Bullock, it's uh, interesting to mention what today's day is about. Today, when it's a special day on the calendar, of course, every day is special, but there are some days that are more special than others, I guess, right? So today we is the 12th day of the month of Tammuz. The 12th day of the month of Tammuz is significant on the Chabad calendar for the fact that there is the, um, it's the day that the previous Rebbe was released from prison, from communist prison, where his life was in danger, where they wanted to kill him for teaching Judaism, literally. He was arrested the day after Shavuos, and then uh, on the 3rd of Tammuz, his sentence to death was changed to exile to Kastrama. And then once he was, uh, that changed to ultimately being that he should be completely released from prison. And then what they did was they realized that having the previous Rebbe in Russia would just create more problems for them. So they decided they're going to kick the previous Rebbe out of Russia. And that eventually led him to come to America in 1940. So in 1937, he was imprisoned in June of 1937. And in July of 1937, he was then released with American pressure and world pressure that came about because they wanted to, God forbid, kill him for his communist activities. It's interesting to, t- to note that, you know, 70 years ago, or more than, you know, this was, you know, 80 years ago, this story happened 70 years ago, where the communists at the time were the ruling power, and they said, we're going to get rid of the Schneersons. We're gonna, that's what they called Chabad Hasidim. They called them the Schneersons. Mm-hmm. We're going to get rid of the Schneersons, because that was the previous rabbi's influence. And... Many years later, after the fall of communism, 70 years uh, communism stood. Communism is by the wayside, at least in Russia, governing power, if you want to call it that. And the Schneerson, the Chabad Hasidim, are flourishing within Russia to the extent that the Russian government gave at the time, or still continues to give property and buildings and synagogues and things that belong to Jews and Hasidim back. And it's continued to go to Moscow today, and you can see a flourishing Jewish community with restaurants, shuls, and everything else. You would never imagine that communism ever stopped Judaism at the time. But today, the very fact that we have the ability to sit here together and celebrate and studying Torah is only due to the fact of the previous Rebbe's efforts at the time of communist Russia, because the previous Rebbe made that commitment. And the interesting thing was in 1937, Purim of 1937, there were people they were known as the Yevetskia, which were Jewish spies, agents for the communists, Jewish communists who would go and report on different Jewish activities that especially the previous Rebbe was doing because he was always being followed and he knew that and his underground network of Hasidim to be able to keep Judaism alive. The previous Rebbe while sitting by Fabrengen on Purim, he said and this was one of the most powerful statements and the way he said it as well, he said that I know that there are agents here of the communist government. I know that there are people here that want to try to stop me from my work but we are not going to stop and we are going to go. And even if it means to put our life on the line, we're going to take it to the end to be able to, to continue the Jewish practices in, in Russia. And under communist, wasn't just Russia, the former whole former Soviet Union. At that time also, he called them ten Hasidim and he made them swear that they were going to be the ones to be on the front lines to be able to make sure that Judaism continues and flourishes. And they were in charge of the networks, whether it was financially, whether it was actively living every single day, even after the previous rebel left Russia. You're talking about the previous rebel leaves Russia. They could not communicate. 
when they were able to continue talking and continuing Judaism in Russia under the guides of the Rebbe, the Rebbe will continue to send messengers to Russia to make sure undercovering clandestine events to bring talis, tefillin, books, and everything to Jewish people in Russia that they should be able to survive, not only survive, but thrive under communism. And many times we found that the Rebbe was talking about the Spifabregans and many times going into crying situations about the Jewish people's plight in Russia. But at all times, any time there was any person traveling to Russia for any situation, the Rebbe would arm them with, it, with articles of Jewish articles, whether it was tefillin, tzitzis, or anything else, making sure that the Jewish people there are taken care of. And throughout the years of communism, the only way that Judaism survived in Russia was because of these efforts that the previous Rebbe today, who was released from prison, set the groundwork for those events to happen. So today on the Chabad calendar is considered a momentous and special occasion and a great joyous holiday, and especially for those people that lived that event, which was just a generation before us, I'm talking about my father, grandfather, lived those events, lived through it. My grandfather was one of the people who was uh, had to uh, run from the communists more than one occasion because he was teaching in a yeshiva and run out the back door, or save students, or whatever it may be. And the bottom line is, because of their efforts, we're here today. So with that, let us study some Torah. A rabbi, a priest, and a minister once come together and they decided that they're going to talk about, you know, even people who are of the cloth and even clergy need to sometimes get guidance and help themselves. And therefore they said, how can we better ourselves if to be able to help our community? And therefore they said, you know what, the, the minister began and the priest began and said, listen here, you know, each one of us have weaknesses. I have a weakness that whenever people come to me for a confession and they drop a few coins into the box, I know it's supposed to go to the church, but I take a little bit of change for myself. The other fellow says, he says, you know, the priest says, you know, I have another little issue. I know we're supposed to not be celibate and I know we're not supposed to drink wine, but what should I do? I have a little bit of an alcohol addiction and I also uh, don't always like to be celibate. And I every so often go to a little bit of Las Vegas and I uh, enjoy myself a little bit. <laughs> And the rabbi says, you know, I also have a weakness. And my weakness is that I'm not going to keep secrets. Oh, <laughs> oh boy. There we have. So many times you look in the newspapers, what's the something that newspapers always love? Is gossip. Not only a good scandal, but a scandal of somebody on the cloth with the cloth. That's front page news. And even if it's wrong and it's not corroborated, you'll find in six weeks on page 62 in a small little correction, say, eh, we made a mistake. It wasn't what happened. It was almost happened. It could have happened, and it wasn't them. So therefore, why is it, what is it, that people of the cloth draw so much attention? And that is because we expect them to live at a higher standard of living. We expect them to be role models. And even though all of us have evil inclinations, as we're going to get to in a moment, but we expect people who are living religious life have a more deeper sensation to something of spirituality to have this level of spirituality better than others or better than the human, better than the regular common folk. And therefore, they're held to a higher standard, respectively so. In fact, Judaism even looks at it. There's something called the desecration of God's name. We read about it in last week's Torah reading. Moses and Aaron who desecrated God's name, which to the simple common folk would be maybe a minor infraction, if you would call it. But for them, it was considered monumental. There's a whole Torah reading about it. They were punished. They weren't able to enter the land of Israel. 
because as they were people of higher stature, they are held in higher regard, and therefore their infraction may be something which is of greater uh, importance and would make it to the Gotham column of whatever page or newspaper would be at the time. Based on that, we now come to this week's Torah reading, and we read about an individual who is a fascinating individual in this week's Torah reading, a fascinating person in the Torah, probably nobody like him in the Torah. Now, where does he come about? We read about a fellow by the name of Bilam. Who is Bilam? And probably, if you want to talk about a person who has such a polar opposite that he carried, was an individual by the name of Bilam. Bilam was a person who, on one hand, was the greatest prophet of all times. He was a person that the Torah describes knew the image of God, as we'll soon see. But at the same time, he was low, decrepit, perverted in any shape of the form, as we'll see what he falls to. And over here, what we're going to discuss today about is, how is it possible that you can have a person who is seemingly so spiritual and godly, but at the same time, so miserable and so materialistic and low and crass the way Bilam was. So let's start up where we are in this week's Torah reading and let's put this in perspective so we can get to understand a little bit better about where and who this fellow Bilam is. We start with last week's Torah reading or we continue from last week's Torah reading where last week we talked about the Jewish people making their way, trekking their way as they're right before the entrance of the land of Israel. 38 years they traveled in the desert. They now come to right before the land of Israel, and they have to go through a few little towns and hamlets where were owned and governed by other nations. Edom, we know we read about last week, the Edomites, they circumvented them. Sichon and Og were considered the giants of their times, the protectors of the people that lived in the desert. Moshe and the Jewish people got rid of them. Moshe killed Og, the giant. That was the last part of last week's story. Then we come to a small group of people by the name of the people of Moab, the Moabites. These Moabites had a little town that was also on the border of the land of Israel. Their king at the time was Balak. He wasn't the king the whole time. There was a whole agenda, as Rashi goes on to explain, that really they didn't get along, but they saw the Jewish people and they teamed up all together against the Jewish people and made this fellow Balak against the king. Now, Balak just saw the strength that the Jewish people had in war. They fought Sichon and Og, who were considered giants, defenders of the people at the time. So they realized that they cannot wage war against the Jewish people merely with arms. They said, we have to wage war against the Jewish people with words. What does that mean with words? Maybe we can curse the Jewish people. And because of that, they hire an individual by the name of Bilam the Midianite. Now, this was the Moabite country. And the Midianite country are now going to team up against the Jewish people. So they hire this Midianite prophet by the name of Bilam that he should come and curse the Jewish people. In the words of the Torah, the Torah says that Balak told Bilam that I know that the people you curse are cursed and the people you bless are best, are blessed. So who is this person? What was this spiritual powerless to this individual named Bilam? Where did he get his character from? So just as an introduction, and Rashi notes to us and tells us, you want to know who this guy is? Just to give you a little tidbit into who this individual is. In the end of days, the non-Jewish people will come to God and complain and say, it's not fair that we are being judged for our abrogations of the Torah and mitzvahs. 
If we would have a prophet like Moses, we would also follow the Torah and Mitzvahs. So what did God do? He gave them somebody. He gave them Bilam, who was a prophet as well, on par as Moses, that the, Jew, that the non-Jewish people should not be able to complain and say, we have no prophets. If you want to know what it means to be on par to Moses, the Torah tells us as follows. In this week's Torah reading, the Torah tells us that Bilam was an individual, in the words of the Torah, Yodeya das Elyod. He knew the knowledge of the one above. What does this mean? He knew the avenues, he knew the roads, he knew how to maneuver when it comes to godly intuition and divine providence and divine presence and divine intuition. In fact, the Talmud tells us a step further. The Medrash says, the Medrash tells us that when it says in the words in the Torah, in the book of Deuteronomy, that there never was a prophet amongst the Jews, like Moses, it says amongst the Jews, mm -hmm. but there was amongst the non-Jews. And who was this prophet amongst the non-Jews that was on par to Moses? Was Bilam. And the, the Medrash goes a step further. There were three ideas, three modes of prophecy that Moses had that Bilam didn't have. And there are three modes of prophecy that Bilam had that Moses did not have. What are the three modes of prophecy that Moses had that Bilam didn't have? When Moses spoke, God spoke to him, and Moses stood there while Moshe listened. However, when God spoke to Bilam, he was not able to tolerate that holiness, and he fell. He wasn't able to stand. When God spoke to Moses, it was mouth-to-mouth, -mouth, meaning that it was a more frontal, uh, wanton discussion that they both had with one another. While when, Moses, when God spoke to Bilam, it was just Bilam heard voices. He didn't see, so to speak, that frontal. It wasn't a pleasant conversation. And as well as when Moses spoke to God, it was direct, while with, Mo with Bilam, it was in metaphors. But at the same time, there were three attributes, three modes of prophecy that Bilam had that Moses did not have. Moses did not know who was talking to him at first. Bilam always knew that it was God calling him. At the same time, Moses did not know when God would talk to him. Bilam was prefaced in advance that he would know when. And as well as Moses, Bilam was able to have that ability to see, so to speak, clearly what the prophecy was, the theory, and what it was, uh, what was a, what would it, what it was alluding to. Well, Moses not as well. These attributes, these greatnesses of prophecy, we don't even find any other pro-Jewish prophets, not Aaron. Miriam, Devorah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you name your prophets. None of them had that quality of prophecy as Bilam had. Even if this greatest of all prophets, which we call Moses, what does the Medrash tell us? He was on par to Bilam. So think about this. You have an individual Bilam. Bilam is an individual who says on par prophecy with Moses. Take even a step further. Look in today's prophecy. In this week's soul reading. We talk about a prophecy that Bilaam tells the Jewish people. Now he, of course, as we're soon going to get to, wanted to curse the Jewish people, and God did not allow him to curse the Jewish people. But what was his prophecy? He was the first prophet to prophesy the time of the redemption, the time of the coming of Mashiach. He foresaw the future of the Jewish people in an utopia of peace and tranquility. He foresaw the Jewish people's ultimate vanquest of the entire universe. He saw the Jewish people in its fulfillment. 
even more so. He was the one prophet that mentioned the one quality that no people ever imagined, especially at that time. He called the Jewish people, Am levadad yishkon ubagoyim lo We are a solitary nation who doesn't need the world's recognition. We don't care what the world has to say. Meaning that the Jewish people are a nation that are going to be for eternity. We are going to weather every different type of obstacle that may happen. Who could have imagined that? Imagine you're looking at a small nation barely making its way through the desert. Having so many obstacles, can't get along the older complaints that they had with Moshe every single other day. There was another plague, they were dying. And over here, they're about to go into the land of Israel. And what does Bilam say about this nation? This is a resilient nation. This is a nation that doesn't need, about, doesn't need any other people. They're going to be there until the end of times. They have a future until the coming of Moshiach. This was a prophet that, in comparison to any prophet, he was a great prophet. And especially as he's on par to Moses. That's one side of the fellow. But then take the other side of this fellow, Bilam. This person is probably the lowest level that any human can get to. He has reached and done things that his, everything that he did was crass, discrepant, and destructive. Think about it. What did he do? What was his suggestion? Just take for even a moment to the suggestion that he gave to the people of Moab when he wasn't able to bless the Jewish people. What was the suggestion he gave? He says, send your women out, your princesses, your most beautiful girls, and let them become promiscuous amongst the men of the Jewish people. This way you can cause them to serve idolatry, and that's the way God will be upset with them. This was Bilam. Can you get any more low and crass than that? Not only that, he was a person who, according to some commentaries, even the bestiality, he was a person who was a perversion of all different kinds. Not a, he was not an honest, he was not a nice person. He was, if you look that, he was constantly wanting to take more money from, Moab, from Balak and so on. So how does this work? How is it possible to have a person who, so to speak, on one hand, recognizes the greatness of God, but at the same time has this low and this terrible demeanor? So the Talmud explains that what does it mean that Bilam was a person? How is he able to curse the Jewish people? Or what would it be his ability to curse the Jewish people? Doesn't a prophet have to listen to God? How can this person, if he's Bilam, if he's a prophet of God, isn't the prophet just mouth what God said? So where does he think that he's going to curse the Jewish people? And the Talmud explains in the tractate of Brachas and says that every single day God has different times, meaning periods. There's periods of generosity, periods of strength, periods of judgment, periods of anger. And Bilam's trick was that if you look at the words that the Torah uses, God gets upset every single day. But nobody knows exactly what time of the day God gets upset or what exactly time when God's upset. Bilam was able to micro-recognize and zoom in on that exact time when God gets upset. And then avoid it. And not avoid it. And utilize it to against the person who is his enemy. That means if, uh, if you're upset, what happens when a person's upset? Think about it as a human condition. When you are upset, things that are petty 
and little upset you more and get you angry and therefore you react to things which may not be appropriate. But when you're generous, when you're in this kind mode, it doesn't bother you. Similarly, in a very different way, but when God is that moment of judgment and he brings about the evil, so to speak, of the Jewish people and he represents it, all of a sudden, that will be able to create some type of anger of God against the Jewish people. And that was going to be Bilaam's way of doing it. So we're talking about a person, if you think about that in itself, tells you about the personality of Bilaam. He is able to use his spirituality to be able to hurt his people, to hurt somebody. But doesn't Hashem he, know this? Hashem, oh, one second. So what do we see? The bottom line is that what we're talking about Bilaam, that Bilaam, Bilaam sees that he understands that this is an individual, that this Bilam wasn't a person who utilized even his spiritual powers to try to hurt somebody, to try to hurt the individual. What's unique about this whole story of Bilam, just on a side note, if you think about it, this whole episode of Bilam, nobody, as, as it unfolds in the Torah, nobody was there to hear it. Because this was in the conversation that God had with Bilaam. Don't go with the Jewish people. Do go with the Jewish people. Even if you go, just bless them. Don't curse them. Even the blessings and the prophecies that he said, no Jewish people knew about it. Bilaam was on a mountain. The Jewish people were in the desert. They didn't even know that Balak was hiring Bilaam. How was it in the Torah? It is because God told Moses what occurred, and Moses wrote it down in the Torah. The fascinating thing over here is it's not that we need archaeologists to be able to uh, help us what it says in the Torah, but it's nice to see, which is that, oh, after the Six-Day War, when they were doing some, uh, just going back, that means 3,000 years after the episode of Bilam, they were doing some type of archaeological digs over there in the Sinai Desert, and they found caves and an old Aramaic Midianite temples that on the walls it had the Bilaam prophecy that he mentions in this week's Torah reading and they can see that it was from 3,000 years ago. So we see that what it says clearly in the Torah was something which was pretty well documented and known then but for the Jewish people how would we know it? It's because God told it to Moses to write it in the Torah. But that's just an interesting side point. What we see over here is we have an individual who takes something, he's of great spiritual heights, he's on a prophet that's on par with Moses, and he does things that even the lowest of the low don't even do. Whether it's a suggestion that he gives to the Moabite princesses, or whether it's the fact that he utilizes his time that he knows when God's upset to be able to hurt and demean others. How is it? And if we look in the Mishnah, the Mishnah and ethics of our fathers compares Bilam to Abraham, our forefather. And he says, you want to see a contrast of what this guy Bilaam is all about? The Mishnah tells us, look at the difference between the students of Bilaam and the students of our Abraham, our forefather. And that's because if you want to know what somebody's really all about, sometimes people can put on a very nice, holy <laughs> image, but see what their students, how they behave, then you know what they're really being taught. And if you want to know what Bilaam is all about, look at the way what his students are being taught. His students are taught to be, he says, we'll take first the positives. Abraham's students all have a good eye. They're happy about another person. They're excited when they see somebody else successful. 
they have a humble spirit and they are able to control their, their inklings, their cravings, their pleasures. In contrast, take that to the people of Bilam students. They are number one, they are jealous of everybody else. They are ego-spirited, high-spirited, egotistic, narcissistic, and they're always acting on their cravings, on their lust and their pleasures that they want. Abraham and Bilam, two opposites of life. Abraham is symbolic and is the symbolism of good behavior, while Bilam is the symbolism of evil, immoral, decadent behavior. Bilam is the father who looks to, see, to curse a nation. He is the person that can tolerate somebody else's good, is jealous of anybody around him, and then goes to the lowest level in order to perform decadent behavior just to hurt another person. And brings us to the question, how is it possible for a person like Bilam, a person who seemingly is basking in spiritual uh, enjoyment, how is it that he doesn't have more to his life? Why is he not happy with what he has, seemingly if he has that spiritual capability? If he is a person that sees godly intuition, how does he have such terrible attributes, such terrible morals, such terrible behavior? What causes a person of Bilam and his students to behave such a way? To take it even further, the Talmud tells us all the kings and all people, there's really not much you can learn from. But Bilam, everything about him, you can learn from. So there must be that this Bilam here is not just a figure in history of the past, but he's actually a idea that represents itself in many shapes and forms in every day and age. And therefore, when we look at Bilam, it is not necessarily a story of the past, but it's a story of the present, of how we have to learn how to focus our life. And it probably has, and not probably, it definitely has a contemporary application in how we can be different in connecting the mind and the heart in having our moral compass in the right place. But let's take it a step further. In order to understand this, there's an interesting 15 verses in this week's Torah reading, which describe an episode of Bilam having a conversation with no one less than his donkey. And he gets upset at his donkey. Now, as you know the story, God tells Bilam, You're not, you shouldn't be going to curse the Jewish people. You should be know that whatever I'm going to tell you, that's what you're going to say. So send the message ahead of time to Balak that if he wants you to curse the Jewish people, it's not happening. But Bilam says, but I really want to go. Okay, you want to go, go. But I'm telling you, you're only going to be able to say what I tell you. Finally, he saddles his donkey. He's excited that he's going to go. He leaps on his donkey, and as he gets on the way, his donkey all of a sudden gets stopped. And his donkey starts going to the side, into the, onto the side road, onto the shoulder. And he beats his donkey. He says, what are you going onto the shoulder? Stay on the path. But there was an angel that was standing in the way that kept on making the donkey maneuver to the side. Finally, the, angel, the donkey goes one way, he hits it, goes another way, he hits it. But finally, the angel stops in the middle of the way. And the donkey can't pass. The donkey sits down. And again, 
Willem smacks his donkey and says, what you lazy donkey, why don't you keep on moving? And miraculously, <laughs> miraculously, God makes the donkey speak and the donkey opens up his mouth and tells Bilam, why did you hit me three times? And with that, Bilam is able to see the angel that's standing in front and blocking the way. But the terminology that the Torah see, uses it is that he sees a donkey and he tells the donkey, and he asks, the donkey asks him, why did he hit me the three times? And the terminology for three times in the Hebrew says, shalosh regalim, literally means three legs. Translated can also be, we say it in our prayers on the holidays, the three major festivals of the Jewish people are Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot, which those are called the shalosh regalim, the three legs, because that's when the Jewish people would walk up to the Holy Temple, every Jew is obligated, males were obligated to go to the Holy Temple and those three major festivals. And the Talmud asks, why is such a weird terminology? Why does it say three regalim? It should say amim is the more, more correct word for time. And Rashi, the commentator, tells us right away, this is alluding to the three festivals of the Jewish people. Telling Bilam, you want to destroy a nation that observes the three major festivals. Now, out of all things that Jewish people do, three festivals is a wonderful thing, but why was this the thing that the donkey and Bilam had a conversation about? What's going on over here? What was so unique about it? What was so special about these three major festivals? I mean, right now, the, the, the Bilam and the donkey have to have this conversation. And over here, what the Medrash is telling us that these three major festivals one of the great Hasidic masters by the name of the Sochach of Rebbe, in his, in his uh, book known as the Shem Shmuel, says as follows. What is special about these unique three major festivals? Every one of these three major festivals ingrained within the Jewish people a value of morals and ethics of how we behave to make us upstanding people. For example, when it came to the festival of Pesach, the festival of Pesach teaches us that we eat poor man's bread, recognizing and giving us the concept of humility. When it came to the festival of Shavuos, Shavuos gives us the ability to recognize that we were given the Torah. The Torah gives us the ability to stand up against our evil inclination and the cravings and the lusts and desires that come. When it comes to the festival of Sukkot, Sukkot, we all sit in the sukkah together as one. We all held a lulav and an esrog, which represents bringing the Jewish people together as one, caring for one another, being there for one another, being happy for one another. These three festivals are the antidotes to the morals that Bilam taught to his students. What does the Mishnah and the ethics of our fathers tell us? What kind of person was Bilam? What did he teach his students? To be jealous to be narcissistic, to not care for one another, go after your cravings, go after your lusts and desires. What are the three festivals? Exactly the opposite, the antidote to such type of behavior. We celebrate Pesach to learn humility, opposite of egotism of the love. We celebrate Shavuot at the time when God gave us the Torah to recognize that we have a teachings of the Torah that teach us that we have to be more spiritual, not materialistic, and not give in to our cravings and desires and the lusts of our heart. And we celebrate the festival of Sukkot, the concept of unity, caring for one another, being happy for somebody else's success.
Bilaam was fighting with the Jewish people about these three major things. And therefore, when he gets angry at his donkey, his donkey says, what are you hitting me these three times, these three major festivals? Why do you want to impress this in the Jewish people? Don't you realize they have an antidote against your type of behavior? They are not like you. They're not students of yours. They're not anything of any your nature. But again, it brings us to ask the question, what is it in Bilam that he's so interested in uprooting any type of good behavior? Aren't you a spiritual prophet, Bilam? Shouldn't you know better? Shouldn't you want to be holy? But what is this teaching here? That there's only one way that a person can truly appreciate spirituality. And if you are lacking that one ingredient, all the spirituality in the world you'll have. You can be the greatest prophet like Bilal. It won't help you one iota. Because if you don't have that one ingredient, not only does it not help you, the spirituality, but it causes to derail you even more. And that is the concept of humility modesty when you lack humility you lack a center point of giving you a compass a moral compass of putting you on the right track of knowing what spirituality is meant to do and how it's meant to achieve to you they used to say a very famous story as a metaphor about this great king who was traveling out into the wilderness once going on a little vacation and he saw this shepherd blowing, playing his flute, gathering all the flock together. And he was so mesmerized by this shepherd and so thrilled by him that he said, you know what, why don't you come to me, to my palace? He brought the shepherd back home to the palace, gave him a beautiful position. And as the shepherd was being successful to his dedication to the king, he would go up in position and position until he became the finance minister of the entire empire. You can imagine that all the other ministers and advisors of the king were very jealous of this shepherd. How is it that this young shepherd comes out of nowhere, all of a sudden raises in the ranks, puts us all to shame, and we have connections? What is it all worth? They decided they're going to hatch a plot against the shepherd. And we're going to try to uproot him and show that this guy was probably a thief and unders. Who knows what he's doing? Because what does he know? He's probably a shepherd. He's looking every time where he can get another dime from. And therefore, they did some research and they found out that in the shepherd's beautiful home, he has a special room that no one's allowed in. He is the only one that has the key to it. They say, ah, this finance minister, he's cutting a little bit of on the side and he keeps it in that room and therefore nobody's allowed in. So they made this allegation to the king. They told the king what happened, tell them about their research and they found out that this guy has a hiding place where he hides all his stolen goods that he takes from the palace. <laughs> okay, the king says, we've got to make an investigation. So they call the chief of police and they everybody goes to the shepherd's home and they're going to break down the door that the shepherd, I said, the shepherd, you don't need to break down the door. I'll open the door for you. <laughs> takes his key, opens the door. They look inside, the room is empty. <laughs> all sitting there is a chair. And on the chair, there's the old garments that the shepherd used to have as a shepherd, his flute and his shepherd hat, and also his sticks that he would walk with, you know, the, shepherds, the staff, shepherd's staff. Right. They look at the shepherd and say, what's going on here? What is this all about? 
And the shepherd tells him and says, listen here, every single day I go into this room, I put on my shepherd hat, I hold my shepherd's staff, I put on my shepherd garments, and I throw the flute. And I remind myself that I'm truly only a shepherd. And if not for the kindness of the king that he brought me from being a shepherd out in the field into the palace, I would be nowhere today. And I owe all my credit and thanks to the shepherd, to the king. <laughs> and because of that, it gives me my moral compass. And sometimes I say, maybe I could take a dime here or some money here. And I would, nobody would know I'm the finance minister. I have this great position. But every day when I go into this room, it puts me back on my proper balance. It gives me what my point is, where my focus is meant to be, and recognizing my position that where I came from and where I am, and how to be thankful for it. The humility is what kept them in position. Therefore, going back to Bilam, in truth, what's the wonder that Bilam behaves such a way? Bilam was just reacting to what is normal. A normal human being who is full of himself wants to wa want what? Enjoy life. Live life. What is, what is it? You only live once, right? YOLO, you only live once. Therefore, enjoy. Bask in the pleasures of materialism. Do what it takes. Go ahead in life. If you're going to sit back and be Mr. Nice Guy, you're going to lose out on everything. So therefore, what does he do? He enjoys himself to the utmost pleasures that he can. Therefore, is it wonders that he, he's not like Abraham or he's not like Moses? What's the difference? Abraham and Moses were not looking to pleasurize themselves. They gave up on their worldly pleasures. They gave up on the materialistic pleasures. You know, there's two ways of looking at life. There's a one way that you can look at life, that God is in the center and everything else revolves around God. And then, whether it's spiritual, physical, it's all, how can I get closer to God? But then there's another way of looking at life, where you're in the center and everything else revolves around you. So it doesn't make a difference how spiritual you are. In fact, your spiritual greatness is only going to serve your ego. And it's only going to make you even greater and more narcissistic, more egotistic, because you're losing, you don't have that moral compass. The only reason why you are spiritual is because that's part of your ego. That's part of how great you are. That I have a greater spiritual level than anybody else. That's part of your ego. <laughs> and therefore, the only true way to be able to stand up against the terrible behaviors is that your moral compass should have a sense of humility, sense of recognition of what is your center. To recognize that you have that humility that humility which gives you the ability to stand up against any type of lust, any type of craving, any type of behavior, which is wrong. When a person has that humility, they're not jealous, they're not narcissistic, they're not lustful because they recognize that God is watching them, whatever they do. And wherever they are is godliness. And therefore they can be able to stand happy and tall, recognizing it's not about them, but it's about God. The Talmud tells us, the Talmud says that the evil inclination is so evil because he's called the evil inclination. As God tells us in the book of Genesis, that the human being, the human condition from day one was created with an evil inclination. How then are we able to overcome it? If not for God giving us assistance to overcome the evil inclination, we'll never be able to do it.
But the only way you're going to have God helping you is if you recognize that God's helping you. If you have that humility to recognize that I and my own are vulnerable. I and my own is miserable. But if not for God helping me, I wouldn't be able to come over to it. So the recognition of humility is the key ingredient to not allowing the ego to overcome. And the ego will be created from even spiritual aspirations. They used to say a very interesting line, a very sharp line. There was once this chassid who was having a conversation with a philosopher. And they were trying to, what's the difference between a Hasidic, a person who studies Hasidic philosophy and the foreign philosophy? They're both studying about the greatness of God. They're both involved the whole day in talking about godliness, if you want to talk about it. So the chassid turns to the philosopher and says, you know what the difference between me and you is? I think a, a whole day about myself. <laughs> you think a whole day about God. The philosopher says, wow, that's amazing. He says, no, but let me explain. I think a whole day that I know for sure God exists and I think about myself and I try to understand how do I exist if God is so great and God is all-encompassing and God is all over the world where's their place for me the little human being this little putrid drop what am I so a whole day I'm thinking about myself and where is my place if God is so great you on the other hand think about God all day because you know you exist. You know it's all about you. And now you have to think about how does God work into the, into the equation? <laughs> That's the difference between Bilaam versus Moses. How is Bilaam able to fall so low? Because all he thought about was himself. He thought about how great he is because he is this great spiritual person with such divine intuition. He was lacking humility. So everything that he did fed into that spiritual. It wasn't that he was a spiritual person and therefore changed his spiritual practice. On the contrary, his spiritual greatness fed to his low, crass, decadent behavior because he said, I am so great, therefore I can do anything I want. <laughs> that's the theological part of it. But that's immature. It's not immature. It's actually natural. It's the natural that's way, way of thinking. Baby acts. That's the natural way of thinking. And that's what we're going to get to in a moment. How does this, well, we take it into the practical. We'll see how this works out. And we're going to look now how the Rebbe teaches us how to take this concept and bring it into our daily practice that the bilam of then is a human condition that we have to deal with every single day and how we can go grow about it. The story told about the previous chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Yisrael Meir Lau, in the early 90s, he was sitting in his home in Tel Aviv, and all of a sudden, a Jew from London by the name of Matul Kamenetsky walked in. He was an older person with a nice long white beard, and Kamenetsky takes a book and puts it on the table. He says, this is my diary of my life, how I survived the camps in World War II and the Holocaust. But I also came here to ask the rabbi for forgiveness for something I did 50 years ago. And he says, you know, this is something that happened 50 years ago. And this, I want to come clean. And he puts the rabbi back in time, 50 years prior, October of 1942, when the Nazis invaded the Polish town of Piotrkov. And they all of a sudden started gathering all the Jews, 
The men, when they brought them into the center of the city, put them on the train on the way to the Treblinka. And the women and the children, they were going to gather and put together and deal with them a little bit later. The father of Rabbi Lau, he was the chief rabbi at the time of the city of Tel Aviv. And the chief rabbi, his father was the chief rabbi of the city of Poland, Pietrukov, was able at the last moment to arrange for a hiding place for his wife and their young son, Yisrael, in, a, in an attic of a non-Jewish person. And there on the fourth floor of the building, about 10 to 15 Jews were stashed in the attic. The Nazis knew that Jews were hiding in different Jewish places, in different non-Jewish homes, especially in different floors. And as the Nazis were climbing into the house, looking in the attics and ended moving one board to the next, looking for the Jews, these 10 Jews were crammed together, trying not to breathe out loud, fearful that the Nazis may, 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 hide, may find them. The mother of Rabbi Lau, knowing that they're going to be in the attic for some time, made sure to take with her a little stash of food and the stash of food, some apples, whatever it was. This little boy, Matul Kamenetsky, was amongst those children that were there together with Rabbi Lau and his mother in the attic. He said, I was starving. My mother and father were killed already. I'm a young orphan with your family. And I saw that bag of apples that your mother had there. I reached in, took an apple without asking. And I took a bite into it. But then all of a sudden the Nazis came. I was afraid to chew. They might hear me. I couldn't swallow because I didn't chew it. I sat there for hours keeping that bite of apple in my mouth. I couldn't put it back into the bag because then somebody will find out. I couldn't spit it out because then they'll know that I stole the apple. So today I come to you to ask you for forgiveness for that apple that I stole 50 years ago. <laughs> Rabbi Lau begins to cry and says, I forgave you already at that time, even though I never knew about the story. But what's the story teaching us? A child, in Proverbs we're told, is born wild. I mean, we all look at child, angelic, wings, quiet, peaceful. But really, what is a child? From the moment they're born, they're sucking from their mother, waking them up when they want. As human beings, we are created with a condition that we need to mature. We have to become better. Because at the moment we're born, we're of a person where all of the, that happens around us. We seemingly are narcissistic. We only think about ourselves. Therefore, what did God do? He implanted within the human condition something called Torah and Mitzvahs. And we have these 613 commandments that we do and the more mitzvahs we have are not because God is looking to govern us or to challenge us. Because as the Talmud tells us, they're there to refine us. Every mitzvah we do makes us more mature, makes us a better person. Gives us a sense of humility like we told, spoke about before the three festivals. Every single one of them ingrained within the individual something that we are able to make be a part of our life, recognizing that the spirituality that we have should not give us ego, but should create within us humility. This is the difference. And this is what we see about the human being. And this is what Bilam missed out on. Bilam may have known everything, but Bilam recognized, Bilam may have seen and all this great spirituality he probably has seen something that none of us will ever see in our lifetime. 
But the problem is from ideas, you don't change people. From ideas, you don't create different human beings. You don't become better because of ideas. Actions is what makes a person better. And therefore, when the donkey yelled at him and said, it's the three legs, what was the donkey telling Bilam? Your ideas, you could be a person of great philosophy, theology, and everything else. But if it doesn't come down into practicality, if it's not the leg doing it, you're a lost cause. You're nothing. You're the same idiot, imbecile, decadent individual. You can have all those wonderful spiritual things, but what did that do to you? Nothing changed you. What changes you is when you make the first step. The moment you do something today, the moment you do something right now, you do an action, you automatically change the equation already. You move the compass. It's no longer about me. It's no longer about what you do. It's what you have done, how you have changed yourself now to recognize that it's not all about you. You have ingrained within yourself in humility. You know, if you take the words Bilam and you take some of the word Amalek, Amalek, and you put one on top of the other, you write Bez, Lamed, Ayin, Mem, and underneath you write Ayin, Mem, Lamed, Kuf. The first two word letters and the last two letters will make the same words. That means it would say Bilam on this side and Amalek on that side. Because Bilam and Amalek are all of one. Bilam and Amalek, they're one completion, they're exact same idea. Because what was Amalek? What was Amalek about? They came to the Jewish people right when they came out of Egypt and they tried to cool them down from their excitement of becoming, the, uh, becoming spiritual. What was Amalek? It says that Amalek, was, why were they so powerful when they went to war? Because Amalek recognized, was able to see people who their luck was very strong. They would send people to war on the day of their birthday because then their luck was strong and they would be victorious and they were able to be successful. Amalek, in fact, the Hasidism teaches us, comes from the word Malika, to disconnect. Amalek's job was, or their motive was, to disconnect the heart from the head. Think, but don't do. They say a story about Aristotle. That Aristotle was once finished giving out this beautiful class on ethics and values. And the students walk outside and they saw Aristotle not behaving, let's say, the most moral way. So they asked him, Aristotle, you just taught us in class about what's the most beautiful way to behave. He says, now I'm not Aristotle. There was a theory Aristotle, and there was a person Aristotle. Two different people. Why? Because theology was one thing, but being doing something was something else. And this was the difference between what Amalek was all about and what all these people were, and what Bilam was all about. There were people that may have had the greatest level of spirituality, but it didn't come down into practicality. You know, they used to say, people are ready to wage war for the truth. But to live the truth, that's a whole different story. They can preach and talk and say how wonderful and beautiful, how everything they got to do. It's much easier to talk about something than to actually do something. And that's exactly what Amalek and Bilam were all about. Talk about it lecture about it, say how wonderful it is. But they didn't want to regal him. They didn't want to actually do it. And this is what God gave the Jewish people, the ability. God says, listen here, you are the most wonderful people. That doesn't make a difference with your theology. You have that humility, then you can grow. The only way that somebody can grow in any shape or form, especially spiritually, is to recognize that they're missing something. You want to grow physically? 
You're not going to eat if you think you're always full. You have to know you're hungry, only then you're going to eat. That's the way you're going to grow and stay healthy. The same idea is also in spiritual. You have to know the humility to know that you're able to grow. This is what the difference that we see about the, this individual below. And as you know, as the ethics of our father tells us, what's one of the worst attributes that a person can have is a person who preaches but doesn't practice what he preaches. And that's why as we started off today, what's the worst thing that you have, a scholar or a person of the cloth who doesn't behave according to the way that they preach and the things that they say? There was a interesting, there's an interesting medrash that says that a maid, a maidservant, while crossing the Red Sea, was able to see more than Hezekiel saw in this prophecy. That means the godliness and the spirituality, the prophecy that even a maidservant saw crossing the sea, even Hezekiel didn't see when he, by his prophecy. So the question is, if she was a maidservant and she saw such great prophecy, why didn't she become as great as Hezekiel? Why would she still be a maidservant? And the answer is she may have seen this great prophecy, but did she do anything to become, to see the prophecy? Did she change herself? If you don't change yourself, you can have the greatest spiritual teachings and guidance and learnings, but that's not going to make anything of you. This is today's practical implication of when we talk about about Bilam. Bilam is all about Amalek. Bilam is all about recognizing that you can have a person that knows all the greatest texts, all the esoteric teachings. You can be the greatest scholar, the greatest teacher. But if you don't do it practically, it's nothing worth. You can fall into abyss, into the, to the lowest and decadent levels. With this, we come to understand also another interesting uh, discussion about which is the most important verse in the Torah. I once discussed this once before. One opinion is it's Shema Yisrael. Another opinion is Vahaftalarecha love your fellow as yourself. But then there's an opinion that says that the most important verse is that every single day they would bring a lamb into the holy temple for a sacrifice. And all authorities agree that's the most important verse. How is it possible? Not about Shema, not about love your fellow. It's because you can have all the theologies in the world. You can love your fellow. If you don't do it, it don't help you. You can, you can believe in God. But if you're not going to be consistent in practice, you missed the boat. <laughs> Bilam missed the boat because he was, had the greatest aspirations. He had the great prophecies like Moses. But he was a decadent person. It didn't translate into his actions. We today have to recognize the point is that from ideas, people don't change. People change from action. You can say, I love every person in theory, and I can make all these beautiful pronouns and all these beautiful discussions and all these beautiful ideas and campaigns and all the things. But what about the guy right next door to you? Have you helped him? Did you offer him a ride? Did you make sure that they're taken care of? And what did you do? Nothing. It's like the guy that was on his way to the big World Peace Conference, and while he was out, he smashed his neighbor's car. He said, what did you just do? I said, I got no time. I got to go to a World Peace Conference. If you can deal all these wonderful ideas, and that's why if you look, all these big conferences and summits and all the, and, and, and that's why you can see people go to the biggest proof in the pudding of today and eight, you have everybody's flying to a climate change conference on their private jets. Why? It's not because they're hypocritical, because they're disconnected. It's theory, but there's nothing too practical. They don't have humility. The moment there's humility, automatically that falls apart. We have this idea that we say, my dear, also every single one of us have to be able to get more consistent in what we do. 
consistent in action. And when we're consistent in the actions, getting ourselves used to every single day, doing another good deed, doing something else, whether it's learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, but in a consistent basis, even if it's only for five minutes a day, that in itself changes the individual because what does consistency mean? I'm the busiest person, but I take five minutes to do something because that's who I am. There's a sense of humility. That brings about change. That brings about change within ourselves. And as they say, if you want to change the world, change yourself. And when we change ourselves, then we know the world will be changed. Thank you.